This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Mr. President, friends, and fellow citizens, he who could address this audience without a quailing sensation has stronger nerves than I, I have. I do not remember ever to have appeared as a speaker before any assembly, more shrinkingly, nor with greater distrust of my ability than I do this day. A feeling has crept over me quite unfavorable to the exercise of my limited powers of speech. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God both for your sakes and ours, that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions. Then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful. But such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th July is yours, not mine. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy a thin veil to cover up crimes 
which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Go where you may, search where you will, roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world, travel through South America, search out every abuse. And when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without rival. Thanks so much for that really powerful reading, Brian. Um, hello, all, and welcome. Um, I just want to take a minute to give thanks to everyone joining us um, from all over the world. Um, I know that we already have over a thousand people joining us today. I am Marianela Abrile. I am a member of the National Political Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America. And again, I just want to welcome you all to this year's virtual socialism conference. It's really heartening to see so many of you coming together today to take the time to learn from each other and bolster, bolster ourselves for the continued fight for a socialist world. Before we get started, I just wanna take a minute to thank the organizers and sponsors of the Socialism Conference, the Democratic Socialists of America, Haymarket Books, and Jacobin Magazine. I also want to give a very special thank you to Verso. Um, they've been incredibly supportive of the conference this year and are streaming one of the sessions on their YouTube channel. And now I will hand it back over to Brian Jones. Brian is a longtime educator and activist in New York City. He writes about Black education history and politics, is a board member of Voices of a People's History of the United States, and works at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Brian will be introducing our speakers and starting off our discussion. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Jones. I'm thrilled to welcome you to the opening plenary of the Socialism 2020 Conference, Racial Capitalism and Crisis. The crisis we're living through is actually multiple unprecedented overlapping crises of health, of the economy and unemployment, and certainly of politics. And at the same time, we have an equally unprecedented social movement erupting in the U.S. in the form of a national uprising against racist police murder. So here to talk about these things, about these crises, how they're unfolding and, and what we can do about them are Grace Blakely and Robin D.G. Kelly. Grace Blakely is an economist, a commentator and journalist, staff writer at Tribune magazine and author of Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization. She also sits on the National Policy Forum for the UK Labour Party. Robin D.G. Kelly is a historian and the Gary B. Nash Professor of American History at UCLA. He's the author of a number of books, including Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression, as well as Race Rebels, Culture, Politics, and the Black Working Class. Let's start with um, opening remarks from each of you. Uh, Grace, do you want to go first? Oh, we can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Great, cool. Um, so I was just going to talk a little bit about the links between um, the centralization of capitalism, so kind of monopolization with um, financialization and imperialism and how these generate crises. And really, I think uh, we can argue that the crisis that we're experiencing today is one that is generated by the internal dynamics of um, the capitalist system rather than what kind of mainstream economists which would, ha would have us believe, which is that this is an exogenous shock uh, generated by the natural environment, which has disturbed an otherwise kind of stable process of production. In fact, many of the, um, the, the trends that we're seeing emerge as this crisis progresses. So, you know, for example, the massive dominance of some of the largest firms, um, firms like Amazon, for example, and the, their growing market power, the imperialistic relationships that structure both global production 
and the circulation of capital, which is now imposing a huge debt crisis on uh, on the global south, um, and the close links between the states, uh, the finance sector, and large businesses, and the way in which states kind of intent on supporting capitalist production have, um, and in in its kind of imperial um, manifestations, have made available unprecedented amounts of of resources to support uh, ongoing capital accumulation. Um, So I think basically to kind of talk about this theoretically first, from the kind of Marxist perspective, we can then look a little bit into uh, how this is actually playing out um, uh, empirically today. So obviously, you know, Marx um, talks about how as the scale of production increases under capitalism, more capital is necessary up front to begin a kind of cycle of of, uh, turnover of capital. So from M to C to M. Uh, The fact that more capital is needed strengthens the links between business, which undertakes production and finance, which manages that capital that is advanced to business. So you get kind of financialization in, uh, in the corporate sector. It also means that only those um, capitals that are able to access these large pools of finance can compete. Smaller capitals that can't access this money can't compete um, and are generally kind of swallowed up by their larger rivals. Those larger businesses then become more productive because of the dynamics of economies of scale. And this leads to a kind of self-reinforcing process of centralization that's only kind of periodically upset by, um, by crisis. So as these monopolies emerge and become more powerful, they're able to exercise huge amounts of market power. Now, there are various ways they can use this market power. Either they can push up prices, in which case they are kind of rentiers. They are benefiting from extraction from consumers, for example, and this pushes up prices. But this is actually the exception rather than the rule. Um, A lot of uh, very kind of centralized forms of production, a lot of monopolies provide goods and services kind of at, well, provide goods at uh, at the cost of of production. Instead, they uh, generate their profits on the cost side. And they do so by, for example, pushing down wages, so benefiting from hyper-exploitation and avoiding other obligations, for example, uh, taxation. So altogether, this generally means profits are much higher. Where do these profits go? Either they're reinvested in expanding production, or uh, if um, profits can't be generated from the expansion in production, we'll come back to that later, then they'll often use for non-productive investments. So for example, share buybacks, mergers and acquisitions, uh, or just you know significant payments of, uh, of dividends to investments. And these, these investment patterns um, and actually the generation of profits aren't neutral. They reflect the logic of imperialism. The multinationals um, and the, the scale of production tends to increase initially, obviously, in the capitalist core, because this is where you know, the capitalist system uh, initially kind of takes hold. And these multinationals that emerge in the core are able to kind of you know, grow up and, um, in, in, in these core countries. And then kind of spread their tentacles all over the world, and in doing so, are able to extract value from the periphery, which then upsets the development of uh, of capitalism in those other economies. That's the first process that um, that Marxists talk about frequently. But in the era of financial globalization, we're also seeing a second form of imperialism, which is a form where uh, even the capital that is generated in in the in the periphery flows out of the global south and into the financial systems of the global north, often via tax havens. And this kind of completes this imperialistic circuit of capital. And of course, when you think about how these profits are generated, um, large international monopolies um, that uh, provide goods and services um, at kind of low cost to consumers, for example, the big tech monopolies, where do they generate their profits? Well, if it's a firm like Apple that generates most of its profits from commodity production, it's hyper-exploitation further down the value chain that uh, facilitates kind of higher wages um, um, for kind of workers in the core. Uh, but it's also, um, uh, but also the ways in which this capital is reinvested uh, reflect the logic of imperialism as well. What we're increasingly seeing today is uh, the profits of large multinational corporations being used to buy up other assets. So this is a kind of the epitome of financialization uh, in that um, many of these large corporations are effectively acting like financial institutions and in that they're using their own profits to buy up assets in lots of different um, parts of the world. And that also reflects the logic of imperialism. And of course, many of these, uh, these profits uh, stem from the 
reduction in tax liabilities associated with the ease with which these companies are able to avoid taxation. Um, so, you know, this, these dynamics of imperialism, financialization, and monopolization create tendencies towards crisis. So, over the long term, there is the, the structural trend, which is as the scale of production increases, the amount of labor used in the production process falls, which creates huge kind of structural issues at the level of the global economy. And we're seeing that today, where actually the global labor forces, according to the International Labor Organization, actually shrinking which is pushing a lot of workers in the, uh, in the uh, periphery into the euphemistically termed informal sector um, and also creating all sorts of pressures on, uh, on uh, waged workers in, in the periphery, as well as to, to a certain extent on, on workers in the core as well. But there are also periodic crises associated with these cycles of investment and, uh, and the business cycle, and especially when there's lots of profits, when there are a lot of profits being generated a lot, not a lot of new investment opportunities. And that's kind of exactly the point at which we found ourselves when the pandemic hit. We'd had a decade of stagnation in the global economy. Really, the only thing that had uh, kind of brought the global economy back to, um, well, has kind, of, has kind of facilitated the recovery was a stimulus program introduced by China in the wake of the financial crisis. And that had really driven a lot of the growth that we'd seen uh, in the 10 years since then. Because in the core, we had stagnant productivity, we had low levels of investment, um, high levels of debt, which were kind of uh, dragging down on, on demand. And the only thing that was really keeping these economies going was the state providing a huge amounts of, uh, of support to the finance sector and indirectly to businesses through quantitative easing. Um, and, uh, you know, throughout this process, obviously productivity is stagnate, stagnating, wages alongside it are stagnating, globalization also is slowing. So um, after the kind of infiltration of, uh, of, uh, of markets that was associated with previous waves of globalization came to an end, um, and as certain economies have kind of been able to, through pursuing a, a, a development path associated with the significant increase in state investment, countries like China, as they've kind of developed, there has been this problem of uh, where can capitalists, where can capital expand into? Where are the new markets that can be subjected to this logic of uh, of imperialism? And increasingly. Uh, it is looking as though those those new potential markets, the kind of new bricks and new mints, um, are uh, are not as obvious, and that's again creating uh, a kind of structural constraint on uh, the um, the uh, investment opportunities available. So we have this um, coincidence of very high profits of uh, a finance sector which is, is kind of consolidating these profits and is seeking out, constantly seeking out investment opportunities, reinforced by a state which is putting more and more money into that system in the same way with a lack of avenues for profitable investment. That is the perfect situation for a crisis to emerge. And even indeed before the pandemic, um, there were a lot of economists predicting that we would be entering a global recession within the next few years. And you know, I wrote an art uh, a long article um, uh, last year saying that we would be heading for a, a recession within the next few years. Um, this has to do with, again, the absence of profitable investment opportunities, the stagnation in productivity, combined with the huge amounts of capital that we're seeking out profitable investment opportunities and also combined with the massive increase in debt that we've seen over the last 10 years. So both uh, both private debt, household debt and corporate debt, which had become very, very significant, particularly in the American economy uh, by the time the coronavirus pandemic hit. So really, you know, how, however you look at uh, the kind of economic um, stagnation that we're, we're going through now, of course, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the, our economies have been shut down as a result of the necessities of the um, of lockdown. But actually, you know, the fact that we're not going to experience this V-shaped recession, the fact that things aren't going to just go back to normal, whatever normal looks like in the context of the kind of secular crisis that we find ourselves in now, um, that fact emerges from the inherent contradictions of the kind of financialized, monopolized, imperialistic system that we are living uh, under today. 
and um, the kind of contradictions and problems that we will be left with with this when, when this crisis ends. So again, extremely high levels of personal debt, high levels of corporate debt, uh, low levels of productivity, and perhaps most crucially, a um, a massive debt crisis in the global south, which at the moment has not been dealt with at all, really. These things are going to come together and give us probably a very severe depression of, along the lines of what we saw last in, in the 1930s. Um, and times like this, where not only are you seeing periodic, frequent, severe crises, but when even the recovery is simply um, characterized by deep stagnation, these are the kind of times when um, you really begin to see levels of social unrest that you were very unlikely to see in the period, say, preceding the financial crisis. And what I will say, just closing, and perhaps we can talk about this more in the discussion, is that the um, withdrawal of support for the status quo associated with this period of, of, uh, of crisis does not necessarily benefit the left, as we know. It can benefit the left if we're aware of these trends, able to understand them, explain them, and therefore provide solutions. But we have seen, and particularly we've seen over the last 10 years, that it is much easier for the right to build very simplistic, nationalistic, xenophobic narratives to explain the decline in living standards um, associated with this, this form of capitalism. Um, so, you know, hopefully we are better prepared, we are better organized in order to explain the dynamics of this crisis. Um, but, you know, whilst it is important for us to understand that we are living in an age of unique opportunities, we also have to be able to organize in order to take advantage of them. There is no natural link between capitalist crisis and uh, the emergence of socialism. Thank you. Thank you, Grace. So as you said, before we have uh, some time for discussion, let's also get opening remarks from Robin D.G. Kelly. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Grace. Um, the last words you said were very, very important for what I want to talk about, that there's no organic relationship between um, capitalist crisis and um, socialism. And um, by the way, I've always wondered if uh, Frederick Douglass was ever invited back to give a speech to the um, uh, Ladies Anti-Slavery Society in Rochester, because you may not want to invite me back after I finish what I'm going to say. Um, okay, so I'm asked to speak about working class responses historically to crisis. And it's a very complicated question because it's sort of premised on the idea that there is a single working class that experiences crises together in totality. Um, but if we are to acknowledge the combined and uneven development of capitalism as a system, then we also have to acknowledge how race and gender unevenly structure the character of exploitation. That is to say, the capitalism operates through racial projects, uh, mm. racial projects that assign differential value to human life and labor. And to put it simply, there are segments of the working class that experience crises when others do not. And there's some segments that are experiencing forms of crises all the time. Um, so if we begin with 1919, the Red Summer, the period that a lot of us on the left love to romanticize about, uh, besides the, the, the fact that, you know, we're talking about the immediate post-war economic downturn, um, this is a period marked by the end of a terrible pandemic, 1918 the end of what was essentially a war over colonies, um, a war that also brought the collapse of the Second International. Uh, you know, the working class fought and died over nations to protect empires, often led by and encouraged by social democrats. A tiny segment of that um, class, with the exception of, you know, the Russian Revolution, which, you know, um, I'll say something about. Um, actually went to jail because they held on to the internationalist socialist idea. Uh, there's the Russian Revolution, which birthed the Third International, which today is probably the most consequential international in history. And yes, come back to the United States, and we see all these promising moments, the Seattle General Strike, the, the, the Great Steel Strike of 1919, the, the birth of a communist movement in the U.S., though weak and divided, it just erupted. But let me point out two things more about this period. One, that the largest work, workers' revolts uh, in this period of, the, of 1919 were not necessarily in Europe, but also in the colonies. We don't talk about that, about places like Trinidad, uh, Johannesburg. Um, also in 
this country, Red Summer meant vicious racial violence, outright massacres of Black workers uh, perpetrated often by white working people. Charleston, Cleveland, Longview, Texas, Chicago, Knoxville, Washington, D.C., before East St. Louis in 1917, after Tulsa in 1921. We can go on. And this is the high point of Black radicalism. Um, You have the formation of groups like the African Blood Brotherhood and various Black socialist organizations. But the potential for a truly revolutionary movement in the Red Summer of 1919 was demolished not simply by a Mitchell Palmer or repression or, you know, or capital, but demolished in part by white working class support for white supremacy, by racial pogroms, by the growth of the Klan. Um, So let me talk about a couple other moments. Uh, The official end of reconstruction in the United States occurs in 1877, which is also the year of the Great Railroad Strike. You know, one of the moments where people thought of St. Louis or Cincinnati as like the Paris Commune. Uh, the great Black socialist Peter H. Clark was one of the leaders of these strikes. There was a flourishing uh, movement in the South after 1877 of biracial and multiracial working class movements, the Greenback Labor Party, the Knights of Labor, but it collapsed you know, with the triumph of white supremacy. It collapsed um, as, you know, through the consolidation um, of white supremacy through disfranchisement, lynching, the violent crushing of the last vestiges of Indian sovereignty, um, the imperial rule in Hawaii, in the Philippines, in Puerto Rico. And remember, the decade of the 1890s is a decade beset with recession and depression. We go back to the 1930s. This is our favorite time, you know, the period when we tend to romanticize the left. I wrote about the 30s. It's the heyday of interracial working class radicalism. But there are three things we have to remember about that moment. One, uh, what made the Communist Party different, because the Communist Party was the most vibrant, successful left formation in the 30s, what made them different than any other socialist party in history up to that point, up to that point, was that they made anti-racism central to their agenda. They refused to treat black workers or brown workers or indigenous workers as just any kind of worker. And they actually for, refused, at least initially, to forgive racism of white workers. Secondly, uh, and this is tied to this, the biggest mobilizations didn't necessarily center around issues like relief or jobs, but in defense of the Scottsboro Nine, the Scottsboro Boys. Um, mm-hmm. In the 1930s, uh, it was also characterized not just by, you know, multiracial insurgencies against capital. It was also characterized by rising fascism that drew on segments of the white working class. Um, they may have taken names like the Black Shirts or the American Nazi Party, but these were American fascists and they were homegrown. Uh, they were the Klan. They were the White Legion or the American Legion. And as Black communist Angela Herndon put it, I love this quote, he says, you know, the fascist racketeers were no fools. They understood the psychology of their starving victims. Their appeal to them was irresistible. It went something like this. Run the niggers back to the country where they came from, Africa. They steal the jobs away from us white men because they, because they lower wages. Our model is therefore America for Americans. Okay. One last example I want to give is jump to the 60s and 70s. The 70s, of course, we know as you know one of the periods of the great global slump, um, another period of crisis. But we get nostalgic about this period because it is also, again, characterized by multiracial working class rebellion. I mean, this is a period of the Black Panthers and the Free- Peace and Freedom Party. This is a period of Fred Hampton and the Rainbow Coalition. This is a period of radical feminism building across lines of race and national difference. This is a period where the new left had an epiphany that it not only had to embrace Marxism, but work in factories. Um, This is also the period of one of the greatest strike waves in American history in the early 1970s. This is all during the worst, again, global slump um, since the 30s. But let me remind you of two very important developments. First, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers was born out of the Wildcat strikes in 1968. 
of black workers in Detroit's auto industry, you know, the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, the Ford Revolutionary Union Movement, et cetera. They developed the most revolutionary program of any trade union movement in history. It was socialist, it was anti-imperialist, it was anti-racist, and it was and it emphasized workers' control. Out of this group emerged another organization, the Black Workers' Congress, and the same thing can be said except that they saw uh, in a strategy demanding reparations as a way to build a revolutionary black working class insurgency to weaken capital and the state's legitimacy and to build alliances with other progressive movements. So what happened? On every front, a significant segment of white workers, along with the ruling classes, and the neoliberal Rainbow Coalition junior partners, the black and brown elected officials and others, um, defeated them. They did not support, um, they did so with support from a repressive apparatus of the state, which had been working overtime to put revolutionaries in prison. This was then followed by the rebirth of the Klan in the 70s. Its base incidentally starts out in prisons with prison guards, it's something to keep in mind. And we see a series of shootings and home and church burnings and lynchings in the 70s and 80s, which brings us to the Greensboro Massacre. Now, I'm not saying, this is in closing here, I'm not saying that white workers supported these reactionary movements, all of them. But this was a period of backlash, uh, deepened by economic crisis into the 1980s and the consolidation of neoliberalism, which, of course, hit the third world much harder thanks to a huge hike in interest rates, thanks to IMF and World Bank austerity measures, and, and all this leading to a global debt crisis. At home, we get anti-affirmative action, uh, anti-immigrant uh, organizing, uh, anti, an anti-tax movement, which helped keep the white suburban dream afloat for some, not everyone, and to preserve some wealth accumulation for a segment of the white working class as black and brown workers in cities experienced defunding. They experienced capital flight, the disappearance of living wage jobs, the defunding of services, and the investment in police. So they had mm. don't defund, invest, um, divest, invest experience. Now, I'm not trying to dampen the excitement for the current rebellion and possibilities for struggle for a socialist future nor am I blanketly condemning white workers. But if we have, but, but, but um, and this is my inspiration for this, if I have to read another article chastising Black Lives Matter and other Black-led anti-racist movements for not being sufficiently anti-capitalist or calling on them to embrace a new humanism and rise out of their identity silos, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scream. The movement for Black Lives, for example, has been uncompromisingly anti-capitalist and pro-socialist from its inception. And you don't have to believe me. Uh, August 28th, check out the Black National Convention, Black August. Um, they're going to be unveiling the boldest political platform uh, in, that we've seen. Our movement has to historically you know, uh, deal with its white problem. And while I see promising signs we still have a long way to go because white supremacy continues to rule. A revolutionary working class movement needs to attack white supremacy and patriarchy directly, not treat these things as obstacles to class consciousness. We need to embrace the wobbly principle of an injury to one is an injury to all, which I take to mean that we build around any segment of the working class of working people in crisis, even as other segments may experience periods of stability and growth. We need a working class movement dedicated to the abolition of the police and the military. And that includes recognizing police unions as company unions. I'm so tired of this hand-wringing about, well, we can't undermine unions, even police unions. The police unions work for corporations. Those corporations are called Target, Amazon. I mean, that's what police do. Um, and they're company unions. The labor movement has a history of fighting company unions before. And so we need to recognize it as such. We need a working class movement that makes as, as, as a central demand, the recognition of indigenous sovereignty, you know, as a central working class demand. Finally, we need to make, you know, 
I, well, let me just say one thing. What, what makes this moment exciting, you know, for me, and, you know, is, is not the discernible presence of white people in the streets. I mean, I'm very excited about that, but I would make the argument that we've seen them in the streets before. Rather, what makes this moment exciting is that millions and millions are taking to the streets behind a radical banner, a radical abolitionist banner, one that calls for abolishing the police and prisons, shifting those resources to housing, universal health care, living wage jobs, universal basic income, green energy, and a system of restorative justice. Um, and this may not be new, but the fact that these proposals are, just, are sort of taking um, new flight across the board, that's what matters. And I think that we have to push, push beyond this imagined sort of future in which the system of capitalism just kind of collapses without actually thinking about what we're going to build and what are the structures of domination, oppression, exploitation that may not look like uh, the way 19th century Marxists thought they look. Uh, and I'll stop there. Thank you. Wow. That was uh, brilliant. Both of you. Thanks so much to chew on there. Um, I guess I'd like to throw the first question uh, to you, Grace, about thinking back to what you were saying about the crisis predating the pandemic. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who feel like, well, I'm out of work. Um, I'm struggling to feed myself. Um, people who are, and then people who are working are risking their lives in those jobs. And, and those Instacart and delivery and Amazon and this whole, uh, uh, organization of hyper-exploitation that you were describing. But you're also saying that the state is propping up capital in this moment and using its power to do that. And it seems to me that we're also trying to make demands of the state to redistribute goods, to take care of people for health and housing and schools. How do you see this dynamic with the state and capital playing out in the near future? And what kinds of things do you think we should be demanding? Muted again. Sorry. <laughs> um, this is a question that I think is coming up all the time now in the context of the, uh, of not the defeat, but let's say the retrenchment uh, associated with the um, end of the, the Corbyn and Sanders moments in the US and the UK. Um, a lot of people, I think, are now looking back over the last four or five years and thinking, well, the way that the left interacted with the state was hopelessly naive. Um, we failed to develop an adequate account for the capitalist state. I think that's certainly true in the UK, where the focus of our energy was so much on uh, this question of austerity. So the fact that we'd had these severe state cuts to public services. Um, and even in the UK, that was associated with, again, you know, the, the leader of the opposition saying there have been cuts to police hasn't been good for you, has it working class people, therefore vote Labour. So it's this very kind of confused understanding of what the capitalist state actually was. And all of our demands were centred on state to give us more things, right? And so as soon as this pandemic hit, suddenly there is this huge amount of confusion because people see the state doing a huge amount, you know, the state supporting workers' wages, supporting businesses, spending uh, spending money in a way that we were told was impossible. And they think, wow, you know, clearly we won the argument and everything's great now. And of course, the fact is that we were making the wrong argument um, to begin with. So uh, coming back to the, the thing you said at the beginning, which is that people are kind of out of work and, you know, a lot of people are really, really suffering. That is absolutely true. And the level of suffering that working people will be facing, not just now, but probably over the course of the next two years, unemployment is likely to stay very high um, in many countries uh, over the course of the next couple of years, is going to be huge, unseen since probably the 70s and 80s. And then you compare that with the fact that in many states in the global south, Governments are being forced to choose between servicing debt to creditors, and if they fail to service their debt to creditors, being forced to default and then shut out global capital markets or purchasing the basic equipment that they need in order to fight the pandemic. Um, so, all around the world, this is going to be a time of very severe uh, contraction in, in people's incomes. But it's also important to bear in mind that this is part of a longer trend. 
So particularly in the global north, where you've seen for the last 40 years, a stagnation really in earnings. So in the US, the average American worker is only as well off in purchasing power parity terms as they were in 1979. In the UK, we've had the longest period of wage stagnation since the Napoleonic Wars. We also have this um, trend that I mentioned by the International Labour Organization saying that the global labour force is shrinking, an increasing number of people in the global south being forced into informal employment, prioritization of employment, the rise in, in debt, uh, and the associated um, constraints that imposes on people. So this is part of a much longer trend. And again, it's a trend that the state supported. Now, the difference is, is that today, the level of suffering that um, working class people are, are going through um, is potentially a threat to the integrity of the capitalist system as a whole. And as a result, the state is stepping in to support working people's incomes so that they can pay their bills, so that they can repay their debts, so that they can keep capital circulating, basically. And of course, this is only happening for the world's consumers of last resort, which are are in the global north. You know, the people whose inflated wages are supported by hyper-exploitation further down the value chain. People in the global south are obviously not being supported in the same way with with welfare and, and, and income support. So it's very much targeted at retaining the stability of the capitalist system. And you can definitely see that when you just look at the level of uh, a patch that is being thrown at the corporate and financial sector at the moment. It is truly staggering. It really does uh, defy, you know, the predictions of even um, people who were less sanguine about the relationship between capital and the state. It has been truly astonishing to see the Federal Reserve basically say we will create unlimited amounts of money to support the needs of capital. I think this has has been a bit of a moment of of clarity in terms of being able to see those links much more clearly um, and understand the role played by capitalist support, the the, the support provided by the state to working people um, throughout the course of the economic cycle is very much aimed at supporting the interests of capital rather than those of workers. So then coming back to your question, which is how do we interact with the state knowing all these things? I mean, this is a really difficult and as yet, I think, unresolved issue on the left, because there are those who say a capitalist state is a capitalist state. There is no way of reforming it. We can only overthrow it, in which case the only route for socialism is revolutionary socialism, which is contrary to the kind of democratic socialist uh, angle that um, that we've been kind of going down for for the last five years, and that of course the rise of democratic socialism represents a, a kind of reversion of the historical trend where neoliberalism, the uh, declining electoral significance of socialism, was associated with a kind of move towards uh, kind of low level protest politics by many people on the left, and the fragmentation of the left into an electoral arm, a kind of NGO arm and a more radical protest-based arm. A lot of those, um, those movements were brought together through, like, through this movement for democratic socialism. There's a danger now that they will um, kind of break up again into their various different uh, component parts based on their attitude towards the state. Now, whilst I'm not um, you know, particularly... I, you know, I'm not, I don't think that the state is neutral. I don't think that socialists can kind of um, hope for electoral victories that allow them to, you know, change the relations of production by using the levers of power given to them by the capitalist state in order to bring about socialism. But what I do think is that if we lose that orientation towards state power, it really does harm the areas of the movement that are maybe not focused on on the acquisition of state power, because there's that famous quote, you know, you may not be interested in the state, but the state is interested in you. And you can see this obviously playing out in the US at the moment, which is that those who attempt to resist capitalism, particularly during moments of crisis and instability, will be killed or they will be otherwise removed, uh, whether that's put into the prison system or whether it's, you know, literally murdered on the streets. And I think for that reason, it is important that we do retain an orientation towards state power just to be able to set, just to be able to, you know, perhaps get into the position where you have uh, so, uh, governments that are relatively sympathetic to socialist movements saying, at the very least, the apparatus of the state should not be used to kill or imprison these people. Um, mm-hmm. And then you can start thinking about building up those movements at the level of the firm, on the street, whatever, and you have much more space to do that. Of course, you know, the, the um, anti-union legislation that's that's used across the US and the UK and many other parts of the world is another element of that. 
So long story short, can we, you know, achieve any modicum of kind of improvement in our standards of living just by demanding things of the state? No. But can we achieve our ends without focusing on the state? I don't think so. Mm. Okay. Uh, Let me throw a question to you, Robin. I was thinking about what you were saying about an injury to one is an injury to all. And the meaning of solidarity, it occurs to me, is that you care about the injury to one. You you don't just campaign about the injuries to all, you do something about the injury to one. And in this case, there really is an inciting one. The murder of George Floyd brought people into the streets in an unprecedented way in a, in a clearly Black-led uprising. And it seems like the unifying slogan of the left at this moment is Black Lives Matter, is about the injury to one. What do you, what do you, how, do, how does the injury to one in this moment connecting to all of the injuries to all? And, and, and what do you think we can learn in this moment um, from this dynamic? Unmute myself. Okay, there we go. Um, that's a very, very, very good question and a very important one. Um, so I want to be clear that. Um, that in this particular instance, the injury takes the form of racialized state-sanctioned violence. Uh, and this is a movement that is, you know, it's not just a lot of white people, but just all across the board, um, Black, Brown, Asia-Pacific, South Asian, Indigenous people are coming out around this. Um, but it's not unprecedented. And I, I just want to emphasize this, that, that in Nora, to me, was an unexpected. If you look throughout history, like I mentioned in my, my 15 minutes, the world, the world literally rallied around free the Scottsboro boys. The, the Scottsboro Nine were not communists. They were not activists. They were just ordinary Black working people who got swept up um, by the police and were almost lynched on the false claim, which is a common false claim, that they raped these two white women. Um, later, the world took up Free Angela Davis, you know, um, the 19th century abolitionists that Frederick Douglass was talking to. Uh, lots of people across the board embraced, including white working people, not just in the United States, but all across the world. In, in England, for example, the Chartist movement ended up embracing abolition. Um, and they didn't do so because they thought somehow it's going to translate into higher wages. They did so because they saw something that was a crime of the state um, against, you, you know, human life. And even if they might on another day uh, see black people as less than human, in these particular instances of mobilization, you know, segments of the working class came out. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, death to the Klan was a rallying cry and the foundation for the John Brown Anti-Klan uh, Committee. So there are two lessons here I think we could learn. One, more often than not, people will mobilize against this kind of violence. Um, and secondly, um, the, the, you know, it's, it's the vast majority of white working people, I would say, um, may not and why they won't is a lesson that we have to learn in other words um why can't we get everyone to support you know because the majority of white people in america don't support george floyd i mean there are people who are court you know the recent story about a, a, a athletic event where the, some other white kids are saying you need to george floyd that cat you know i mean mm-hmm. that's the language that we're getting not necessarily the glorious language of msnbc right so if you read Stuart Hall's 1988 book, and I'm glad um, Grace is here because maybe you know she could give me some insights or disagree. I think that he, he understood something in the book that he wrote called Hard Road to Renewal, Thatcherism and the Crisis of the Left, which gives us some answers. He, he took the British Marxists to tasks in the, in the labor movement for failing to understand how Thatcherism incorporated and then neutralized popular discontent by tapping into white racism, into masculinity, into the unresolved psychic trauma of the end of empire. In other words, to make Britain great again, you know, meant restoring the old order of Anglo-Saxonism, racialized patriotism, 
heteropatriarchal authority. And Hall was arguing that, you know, that, the, that if you understand the working class, the working class of the 20th century, the late 20th century, has been recomposed. It's, it's not unified. It's not homogenous. It's divided by race, gender, uh, and, and it's fractured. And this is our problem. Um, our problem is that you know, a lot of Marxists acknowledge these divisions, but see them as identity politics or chimeras or false consciousness. And this makes it impossible to see class rule not as a single class, but an historic block that can incorporate both elements of finance and industrial capital and the working class. That is to say that there are white people who are saying we need more police, we need more repression and more violence. And those are the ones we have to talk about. Not so much that we can bring them over to our side, but we have to understand that if, if um, historic blocks frame or shape the way we move forward, um, I totally agree with Grace that the question of state power has to be on the table. Uh, and, but state power doesn't necessarily mean that it is one whole unified working class. It is fractions, elements, fighting over very specific aspects of state power. Sometimes it takes a form of running for district attorney and trying to control the criminal justice system. Other times it takes a form of trying to challenge forms of financialization or expand the welfare state in an environment where the welfare state is seen as like um, a, a, a racialized project of handouts, right? And we have to even change the discourse on what the social wage is supposed to do and for whom to distinguish between the kind of phony undeserving versus the deserving. You know, where the state could pass out huge amounts of money and subsidies for private housing uh, and for corporations and for suburbanization, but then, you know, a little pittance for um, aid to, to, to families that don't have other forms of income is somehow seen as a burden on taxpayers and a burden on the state that's undue. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Grace, in your remarks, you also spoke about imperialism and about the rivalry and competition with China uh, seems to be one of the kind of sharpest rivalries emerging on the national stage and has been for a while, um, among others. How do you see the crisis playing out in terms of the question of nationalism and scapegoating and xenophobia? Um, and war. Muted, sorry, I'll mute myself. Um, I think it is, so, you know, I'm not going to be able to talk in depth uh, in the way, you know, that we've just been hearing about, uh, you know, about the dynamics of, um, of uh, racism and nationalism and how they manifest themselves politically, but I do you know, believe that is very important along the lines of what, what Stuart Hall has said. What I can talk about um, is, purely because it's where my expertise lies, is the links between um, those forms of racism and structures of, uh, of, of economic power. So currently, the scapegoating of China, for example, by the Trump administration, the trade war, um, and the kind of general xenophobic tone that he struck you know, as the the virus has progressed, is very very functional um, because American capitalism has, for quite a while, been um, becoming less productive. It is it has been associated with obviously, you know, from the period that um, from the nineteen eighties onwards, uh, we saw a massive increase in financialization that was associated with capital inflows into uh, the American economy linked to the role of the dollar as the reserve currency, but also linked to the massive asset boom that was then underway in, in housing markets and in financial markets. Um, the huge increase in, in household debt, um, increase in house prices, deepening of uh, financialization through corporate world, all of these things which generated obviously the, the, the bubble economy that we had prior to the crisis and which concealed underlying trends towards stagnation. And this is now even recognized by mainstream economists who talk about this idea of secular stagnation. So the fact that even before the um, obvious stagnation in productivity and that's been um, manifested since the financial crisis, there was a pre-existing decline in productivity in sectors outside of uh, finance, real estate, 
and those ones that were really in the middle of the boom. Um, so American capitalism has become less productive. It's become more sluggish. It is massively dependent upon the imperial role of the dollar, which both allows um, which both kind of uh, allows America to sustain its massive current account deficit and allows the state to sustain its large fiscal deficit. Um, and it is also very obvious that that hegemony is increasingly under threat. Now, obviously, America is still by far the largest economy in the world. It has the largest military. You know, the, the dollar is definitively the world's reserve currency and is likely to continue to be for at least the next several decades. But, you know, there is that classic observation, the Thucydides trap, that it is best to try and take your enemy down before they become as powerful as you are. So at the moment, you know, America is more powerful than China. It makes sense for Trump to try and use the mechanisms available to him to halt China's rise. Because, you know, if we do reach a stage where American imperial power is threatened by uh, the power of, of China, then you potentially get to a point where the role of the dollar as the reserve currency is threatened. And at that stage, you know, it is obviously unclear what would happen next? Do we move towards the renminbi as the international reserve currency? If so, China has a long way to go before being able to internationalize that currency. Do we move to a system of IMF special drawing rights, for example, being used as uh, uh, being used much more uh, systematically? Uh, and what impact would that have on kind of imperialistic relations? That's a very interesting question. But you know, regardless of whether or not we're able to see what comes next, it's becoming increasingly clear that America's power is being threatened and that there may reach a point at which that manifests itself in, um, you know, the de facto, uh, well, I mean, we're already seeing the kind of declining use of the dollar um, in terms of, 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 of national reserves, uh, but whether or not that starts to become systemically important, more systemically important than it currently is, is a really significant consideration. Now, that both underlies Trump's xenophobia and nationalism, and also the kind of internationalism of the Federal Reserve in extending um, swap lines to central banks all over the world to allow those banks to access dollars. And uh, this is partly because central banks need, dollar, need dollars them, themselves to support their kind of um, uh, uh, governments, but it is also because um, there is a huge amount of debt held by private institutions denominated in dollars. So central banks also need these to support their corporate sectors. Now, obviously, who isn't on the list? China. And Adam Tu's very, very interesting article talking about how um, if you know the Chinese state needed to access dollars, it has a huge pot of dollar-denominated assets. That is the debt of the US government. Was the Chinese state to sell US treasuries en masse in order to get access to dollars? That would have a really significant role uh, that would play a really significant role in in undermining America's imperial power. So, really, the the American state is walking this tight walk, tight rope at the moment between its kind of um, the the waning productivity of the American economy, the waning power of American capitalism, and the rise of China, whilst recognizing that um, you know recognizing that Trump's power rests on his ability to stoke these nationalistic tensions, that kind of jars with the recognition that actually American imperial power rests on forms of internationalism, like, for example, the Fed's ability to provide swap lines, which maybe you know, doesn't fit with, with, with Trump's rhetoric. So, you know, yeah, I can see the ways in which, I think it's very obvious, the ways in which the, the rhetoric that we're seeing at the moment is, um, is functional to the reproduction of, of capitalist power relations. And that even, you know, goes without saying all the, the dynamics that we know exist, particularly in the, the American economy, about the huge amount of basically free labor that is provided by African-American populations, the massive differences in wages between white and black populations, the accelerated exploitation of black populations, and the functionality that that in in uh, in the reproduction of American capitalism, so without wanting to kind of reduce these things to a kind of functionalist understanding, where you say you know obviously there's racism because racism is functional to capital. Obviously, those things can't be reproduced without drawing on pre-existing tropes and narratives and constructs that exist you know 
psychologically, sociologically, it is also obvious why today these tropes are being used so much more and are becoming so much more important. Mm. Well, actually, that's an interesting point. Um, the role of racism, its connection to capitalism. Um, how would you characterize it, Robin? I, I know you use the term racial capitalism. That's that's part of the title of this plenary. How do you put those ideas together? I'm muted. Okay, so um, of course, I wish I could take credit for that term, but I can't. Um, the term itself actually comes out of South Africa, uh, you know, attempts on the part of the, the you know, communist Trotskyists and anti activists and organizers to try to understand what was unique about capitalist formation in South Africa. And from there, my professor, my teacher, um, Cedric Robinson, developed it um, in his book, Black Marxism. And part of the point he was making, which I think is relevant to our conversation, it ties to what uh, Grace just said, and that is that, you know, um, capitalism emerges not necessarily as a negation of feudalism. It grows up in the soil of feudalism. And the feudalism, you know, in Europe um, was also marked by a deep racism, racialism, as, it, as he would put it. And so, you know, R racialism, racial difference is something that was already grounded in Western civilization in the formation of capitalism from its get-go. It took the form of, of you know, the suppression of the Irish, of anti-Semitism, of anti-Arab um, uh, repression. It took the form of, of, of basically recognizing that difference is not sort of like a neutral, curious thing, but capital builds on segmenting, you know, populations uh, and marking some for forms of exploitation and others not. So in other words, racism, racialism pre-existed uh, capitalism. And it, in like any dynamic form, it's not archaic. It continues to exist and take on various forms itself. But the most important aspect, I think we have to always keep in mind, and I kind of said this at the at the beginning that, you know, that capitalism operates through racial projects. And these racial projects basically assign um, value through difference, you know, they differential value to human life and labor. Um, that is the value of human beings, both in terms of the value of their labor power. Uh, so labor power is not some sort of um, abstract, um, or the labor theory of value is not just an abstract sort of neutral, non-racial, non-gendered non uh, way of, of, of understanding, you know, surplus and wages. Um, and the same thing with, you know, property value, what it means to make human beings as property. Um, you can't separate the history of slavery, for example, and indigenous dispossession uh, from, you know, a market economy that, you know, puts that makes that makes things into commodities makes human beings into commodities and also places a certain kind of value on private property unless that property is in the possession of or occupied by people who don't or not seen as valuable so in some ways you cannot there's no just thing as a non-racial capitalism and this is yeah. i think the important point that and Ruthie Gilmore talks about this you know uh, you cannot separate these things um, and that's to say that, you know, it's not as if we fight for the abolition or dismantling of capitalism and then after that try to deal with racism. Um, these things are inseparable, you know, and unless we recognize the inseparability, we won't be able to understand the success of capital, of capital, of state to be able to incorporate um, elements of a working class who sees the value of their own whiteness as Trump trumping, you know, no pun intended, um, the, the exploitation of their labor power, you know. Thank you. I want to switch uh, gears for a moment and ask you uh, another question, Robin, which is about 
solutions and organizing and the way people move forward. Grace mentioned different wings of the socialist movement, one that might seek electoral office, another that's more focused on protest in the streets. But it occurs to me that there's something else that people just do in a crisis, which is look after their neighbors, take care of each other, even feed each other. What do we make of the history of mutual aid uh, Mm -hmm. that people organize uh, when they feel that the existing institutions aren't meeting their needs and they may not even make continue to make demands of the institutions because they know those needs will never be met. Right. Um, this is a, this is a one minute answer because I only have yeah, two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like of course, around. mutual. Yeah. yeah a- a- anarchists didn't invent mutual aid, of course. And, and everyone knows that. Um, and in fact, mutual aid is the basis of any kind of solidarity or community building. Collective survival is 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 essentially what is humankind about. But also, Peter Kropotkin made the point that mutual aid is what the animal world is about. You know that you know even outside of human beings, this is just a natural order of of, of survival. It's not Darwinian. Darwinian is kind of a, a myth. Um, but that said, politically, it's been important in terms of you know the history of guerrilla warfare. Uh, you know, but what's different about the last 200 plus years is that we actually do have a modern liberal state that we can make demands on uh, the sense of entitlement from the state, the sense that, you know, and this comes with social democracy and the progressive and New Deal era, the idea that we are expected to get, we should demand these things. That's fairly new. Um, And that to me is what makes this moment different. Uh, And we have to, we're going to continue to survive and build power through our own survival. But, you know, what happens is that sometimes when we survive through forms of mutual aid, the state can come and take that. I'll give you one real quick example. Detroit, where, you know, Detroit's a good example where you have these amazing um, community-based farming taking the mm. empty lots and the, the places left uh, by capital flight and transformed into gardens and, mm. you know, um, trying to deal with food scarcity. And these, through forms of state power, eminent domain, you know, all kinds of things can transform these commons into private property. So that right. even the defense of mutual aid is a struggle to try to create a new commons. So in, just in 10 seconds, the, if we think of mutual aid as not just survival pending revolution, but also making the conditions of revolutionary transformation uh, through the formation of new commons, then it takes on, I think, a really significant uh, role in the, in the future. Okay. Thank you both. That was really brilliant. Um, Grace Blakely and Robin D.G. Kelly, uh, thank you so much for those answers and your brilliant remarks. And thank you for joining us uh, for this plenary session as part of Socialism 2020. And actually, the conference continues for the rest of the day today. There's more coming up. We're going to take a 15-minute break right now, and we'll be right back here with three talks streaming simultaneously. The titles are Reparations for Slavery and Settler Colonialism, toward a green new future. And the third is socialist organization and the capitalist state. You can view all three at the Socialism Conference website, socialismconference.org. Thank you, speakers. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.